previously on the Sick Invite Podcast. No, that's not. You good. should call HR. Absolutely. <laughs> the whole context of it is is horrendous. But as an actual recommendation, that I don't know. <laughs> you are now listening to the Sick Invite Podcast with Kayla Herb and Ricky Grimes. Hello, my name is Kayla Herb. And I'm Ricky Grimes. And this is the Sick Invite Podcast, a storytelling show about all ailments, big or small, chronic or temporary. The Sick Invite provides an inclusive space for you to share your story. What is wrong with you? I have peanut butter stuck on the roof of my mouth as we record this. Is it noticeable on the microphone? Uh, no. You can't hear it? No. Oh, okay. How are you today? I'm very excited because we have our first guest today. Oh, very good. But before we get to that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, do this part of the show. This show is brought to you by KaylaHerb.com. That's KaylaHerb.com, where knit blankets, custom quilts, private photography sessions, and other homemade items are available for purchase and custom order. Please subscribe to our show, comment, and review. Follow us on Instagram at The Sick Invite Podcast and tell your friends. We also have some merchandise available on thesickinvitepodcast.com, including our What's Wrong With You shirts, mugs, stickers, and buttons. We are now also on Patreon. For $3 a month, you can get early access to our episodes, behind-the-scenes content, 10% off KaylaHerb.com, comedy, uh, stand-up comedy clips from me, and more. Okay, Kayla, before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to ask you a question because I got absolutely nothing, uh, no comments from Klaus this week. So I think he's mad at us about the the birthday card situation. So did you hear anything from him as well? Yeah, he just told me thank you. Oh, he did? What did he write? You? Uh, he wrote to you on Facebook? And we were texting. Oh, you, were, you, have his, you have his phone number? Yeah. How do you have his phone number? I have to. What I do is I don't even have. He's a burner email account. Like I have to send. He sends me. I get a telegram or not a telegram. I get a letter from a PO box that sends me a like a list, a schedule of emails, and then I have to send it to whatever email it is that week. So he doesn't even use the same email twice. But you have his t- cell phone number. Yeah. Oh, I think it's very confusing because I was checking the obituary section to see if he was still alive. You know how many Klauses there are in 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 New York State that die every day. Uh, not many, I would think. No, not many at all, which is why it was difficult to try and figure out if he was alive. So, all right, so at least you know have confirmation. I think he's just mad at me from, from last week. But, Klaus, I, I want to let you know that I'm not sorry and that I just want you to make sure you're doing your job and I'll do mine. Huh? On today's show, we have our first guest, Priscilla Morelli, who's going to be discussing osteogenesis imperfecta, otherwise known as brittle bone disease. Today's theme is telling your story. So Priscilla, what's wrong with you? Um, I'm Priscilla and I'm a medical student living with a brittle bone disease called osteogenesis imperfecta. Now what is that exactly? So it's a brittle bone disease that I was born with, it's a genetic condition, and it basically just means that my bones aren't built the same way as yours. I don't make collagen properly, which means that my bones are extra fragile, so they break pretty often and pretty easily. Now, did they know this about you as soon as you were born, or was it something that was learned later in your life? No, so since I'm 25, it was a lot less understood back when I was born. I was actually given a perfect score as a baby. When I was born, they thought that I was a perfectly healthy, normal, baby girl. Um, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 11 months old. Um, At that time, my mom had brought me into the hospital because I wouldn't stop crying. The first time they told her that I was just colic, so they switched my formula a bunch of times. That wasn't going to fix my bones. So I continued crying, and that is when they brought me to the emergency room. They took an x-ray, and all of my long bones were broken. So they actually arrested my mom for child abuse, um, thinking that I was a perfectly healthy baby. So they brought a whole case against her. There were detectives at my mom's house interviewing my parents, my grandparents, everything like that. Um, It took probably a month of that before. Yeah, holy cow is right. They uh, it took about a month before they decided that there was more going on here. A doctor finally diagnosed me after a nurse recommended to my mom that she reached out to a very particular specialist. Um, He eventually diagnosed me with osteogenesis imperfecta and the case was dropped and they kind of looked at my mom and said, oh, sorry, it's gone. Oh my God. 
how did that affect your mom just mentally? Because you're her, the oldest, you're her first child, right? Right. So that was, that was big for my mom. Um, I obviously don't remember any of that. I was, a, I was 11 yeah. months old, but it was, um, from what I understand, that was probably the most stressful thing any mother could ever have to go through because she obviously knew that she wasn't doing anything wrong. Um, she was raising me the way all of her friends were raising their babies, the way that she was taught to raise a baby and mm-hmm. for her to be vilified for something that she wasn't doing was, I could only imagine what kind of horrible situation that put her in. So that was just hearing about it is really hard because it's something that I couldn't control, something that she couldn't control. And I think there's still a lot of self-blame there just because it is a genetic disorder. And now for me, it was a spontaneous mutation. It's a dominant disorder so if anyone expressed even one copy of the gene in my family they would have it that's all you need to have oi but because no one in my family has it that means there are no carriers so no one can be carrying the gene so it didn't come from anyone it my genes decided to make a mistake when they were creating a person and here i am that is incredible i mean that must have been so scary for your mom too because not only being accused of that, but knowing that she didn't do this to you, the worry of did somebody else do this to you um, prior to knowing that something was just genetically wrong. Um, but wow, I, how I didn't common, know that. <laughs> how common was, once they determined what it was, how common was it just generally in the world? Like, w- was it once they determined what it was, they were like, oh, and there was a lot of info on it? Or was it fairly new? or uncommon at that time? I don't think that it's the case that the prevalence of it has changed. So I think the prevalence is now about what it always has been. Um, They just, generally people with my bone disease weren't reproducing. We didn't have the technology to be able to let people with my bone disease have kids. So there were were a lot less There was a lot less, um, I guess. Cases, people? people. Yeah, there were a lot less new babies with OI. So, and there was a lot less understanding of it. So even when people did have it, it was kind of like the way it always was with disability back in those kinds of times. It was, oh, this person's different. Just hide them at home. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot less prevalence. There was a lot less treatment um so i i think that that's the case and i think right now the prevalence is something like one in twenty five thousand. um mm-hmm. the last time i checked i think it was around there it's pretty rare um to have a y but because it is autosomal dominant if i were to have a baby the odds are 50 50 no matter who the father is wow so, wow yeah now do they and I'm sorry if this is an inappropriate question to ask. Uh, the Just the carrying a baby, is that a lot of trauma on your body? Just to, because for a, a perfectly healthy person, carrying a baby is a lot of work. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's not an inappropriate question at all. I actually wish more people would bring it up. So it's, that's kind of one of the unspoken things in OI is that, it most mothers with a Y, the last time I read the statistics, it was something like most mothers with a Y who do choose to get pregnant and carry a baby end up hospitalized for something like six months post birth just for the mother, mm-hmm. regardless of whether their baby has that 50% chance that they end up having a Y or they don't. The mother ends up hospitalized for six months because of broken pelvis bones, broken pubic, pubic bones, ribs, vertebrae. So, I mean, I've, without carrying a baby, I've broken my pelvis, I've broken my vertebrae, I've broken ribs. So to have that kind of weight on your body that whole time for nine months is obviously not something that's going to be easy with brittle bones. Um, In addition to, you know, there's no no shot at vaginal birth. It's always going to be a C-section. 
so things like that it's it's really something that people don't talk about because it's a lot of the you know with the genetics you know are you going to have kids it's not just about the genetics it's about my health too mm-hmm. so yeah it's still a choice that you have the right to decide if you want to put your body through that right and then your body has been through so much already you were mentioning treatments what kind of treatments are there for people with this disease so when i was born all of the treatments were really in the experimental phases so right now we have things that are called bisphosphonates they're injections that kids with oi can undergo before their growth plates close so Basically, it just improves bone density, reduces fractures, things like that. Um, it's almost like a, I don't know if you're familiar with osteoporosis medications. A lot of osteoporosis medications work in a similar way. They're bisphosphonates, but those are all oral. These are stronger and they're meant for children with OI. So it means that they have to be hospitalized for a certain number of days so that they can get their injection and they have to go in every three months or six months depending on the type of injection that they're getting because different manufacturers have made different ones now. Um, When I was little, those were all still in their experimental phases. So I was enrolled actually in the experiment and I was one of like the only kids in like a group of 100 that got it that um, I ended up with kidney failure or liver failure or one of the really adverse side effects. So they had to pull me from the from the project but it works really well for a lot of kids now with OI it's really and I I don't mean it brings them to normal functioning because there are a lot of other things that happen with OI that you know just bone density isn't going to fix like short stature it's not going to fix that a lot of kids are born with my bone disease that have the whites of their eyes are blue it's called blue sclera that's like the number one telltale sign of OI And it's something that I just don't have, which is why they weren't able to diagnose me when I was born. Um, Things like that. Um, Poor lung functioning because your lungs are made of collagen. All of those things. It's not really going to help that kinds of stuff, but it does drastically reduce the fracture rate. And it does drastically improve the bone density. That's seems like it's pretty helpful, but it seems like there's still a long way to go to making everyone, not, I don't want to say cured, but just to function daily, as you were saying, without right. having to worry if I, because I, I, I've been with you where you just bang your arm too hard on the desk and your, your wrist broke. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, that's a thing. I, I've, and then you were, I know that you've had surgeries. Was that a treatment plan or was that just a complication of the particular bone that you had broken? So it's a combination. Since there's no cure and realistically we are so, so, so far away from cures for things like this because it's a genetic disease. So I mean, now we're looking at stem cells and that whole area of science that no one really wants to look at. Um, So cure is really not in the near future for us, but treatment goes anywhere from the injections that I was talking about to the kinds of surgeries that I've had because my surgeries more so happened like as I needed them so I would break a bone and now we have to fix that bone so we put a rod through I have rods through all of the bones in my legs and those rods yes they helped that bone heal at the time that it was broken but now they're going to add support to that bone because the rods are obviously a lot stronger than my bones are because my bones aren't very strong to start with. Um, The metal helps to bolster my bone and make it stronger on its own. So it'll prevent fractures. It'll prevent, I guess I shouldn't say it'll prevent fractures. Um, It will reduce the risk of. Yeah, it reduces the risk of fractures. It takes a lot of the weight off of the bone and it keeps the bone from bending. We call that bowing when the bone bends. So that's a really common problem with my bone disease. And when I was born, if you look at x-rays from when I was like one, my bones look like noodles. Like they look like elbow noodles, like they're curly. Wow. So it, it was wild. And I hadn't seen those x-rays until like a few months ago. I'm 25 and I hadn't even known that those x-rays existed. 
I pulled them actually so that I could give a lecture to my classmates in medical school about my bone disease. Um, and I saw these x-rays and I'm like, how did no one look at these and assume that there was something wrong with me? <laughs> why, why did no one look at these and guess that? So the rods really help with that. They help to straighten out the bones. But it's also a matter of when you do fracture, because we will continue to fracture, those rods keep the bone from being able to separate when it breaks. So it really improves healing time because the bone won't, the two pieces of bone stay really lined up so that they can get sticky and heal a little bit easier. So you mentioned medical school. Medical school. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you're in medical school. Medical school. That's amazing. Medical school. Medical school. <laughs> that is amazing. Now, did your disability um, influence your decision to want to become a doctor? Yeah, absolutely. So I've had over 150 fractures. I've had 34 surgeries now. Um, my doctors really, other than my family, like my mom, my doctors are really what enabled me to be the way that I am. Most people with my bone disease are either wheelchair bound or arm crutch bound. Um, I walk, I go to the gym a few times a week. I have a service dog who still needs exercise, so I walk her. Um, I'm not exactly the norm for osteogenesis imperfecta. I, they predicted when I was diagnosed that I would never walk. I didn't walk independently until I was 17. You knew me in middle and high school and you know, I didn't walk without a cane, a walker, mm -hmm. a scooter, crutches. And so when I was 17 was the first time that my bones were healed long enough without a fracture to that I was able to learn how to walk independently without the use of any of those tools. And if it weren't for my doctors, that never would have been an option. My doctors wouldn't allow me to sit in a wheelchair for more than two weeks at a time post-surgery. I needed to weight bear because weight bearing is how you improve your bone strength. You need to use your bones if you want to make them stronger, if you want to make them heal. So a lot of the issue with people with my bone disease is that they'll end up in a wheelchair because they broke or they broke more than one thing at a time and now they can't use crutches, they can't use a walker. And now we're in a wheelchair and now you're in a wheelchair for so long that I don't know if you're familiar with how muscles start to break down if you're not using them. Muscles get so weak that you kind of can't use them. Their rehabilitation for something like that takes forever. Similar things happen with our bones. So we will be in a wheelchair and our bones will, you can think of it as if our bones start to disintegrate. They get really much weaker than they already were. So now when we go to stand back up, we're gonna break a lot more easily than we even would have before. And so that whole process leads to a vicious cycle of being stuck in a wheelchair. And now it's hard to get back up. It's harder than it was before to get back up. And that's the unfortunate reality with a lot of people with my bone disease is you're bound to arm crutches or a wheelchair for the rest of your life. And there's such variable expressivity. That's the word that we use for it um, in OI where we have the same genetic mutation, but it affects all of us a little bit differently. How I don't have blue sclera, but most other people with my bone disease do. Um, things like that also contribute to the whole wheelchair, non-wheelchair thing. But as far as I'm concerned, as far as I've been, as far as it's been explained to me, the fact that my doctors kept me out of wheelchairs, the fact that my doctors pushed me to walk, the fact that my doctors were good enough to find a solution when I needed it and it was the best solution. They were open to new ideas. I went for second opinions all the time. We mm. wanted to avoid surgery at any cost. So if we could find someone else that would give us an option that was just as good, that wasn't surgery, we were gonna find it. And we went back to my surgeon every time because every time he had the best answer. And yeah, so it wasn't, I'm was sorry, gonna, go ahead. I, I was gonna ask you, because Kayla talks a little bit about uh, when she was going through her diagnosis and trying to figure out how to uh, figure out what's wrong with her, like trying to sh go finding a doctor that works for her, her and finding someone who, who was able to get her on a good course. So 
did you have did you, sh- you shop around a lot to different doctors and were there specific things that you were looking for them from them or attitudes or something like that so kind of not really um the way it went with me was the doctor who diagnosed me his name was dr jack handelsman he became my my orthopedic surgeon so at 11 months he became when he diagnosed me he became my doctor for ever basically if he gave us if something really bad happened like i had a really bad femur fracture and i needed a really intense surgery we would go for a second opinion to see if there was something else that could be done other than this wild ridiculous 12-hour surgery that dr jack was suggesting Mm -hmm. but otherwise i mean his word was the bible basically we went by everything that he said because he was always right Mm. um after he was already pretty he was already pretty old by the time he became my doctor but i mean the man was a genius he and still is i he was in i want to say his 60s 50s when he became my doctor he's still practicing medicine today so Mm -hmm. wow that's amazing yeah, so he ended up having some medical issues of his own. He had back surgeries during during the time that I was still injuring a lot, but I was still fracturing a lot. Um, when he started going in for back surgeries pretty often, I needed to find someone else, so he actually referred me to his resident. So after medical school, you go into residency, and then you can become a practicing doctor. He referred me to his resident who had just kind of sat in the room during a lot of my surgeries or assisted him with a lot of my surgeries. Mm -hmm. And truth be told, we hated the guy when we met him. (laughs) As a resident, we hated this guy. Like, I can't even tell you why. There was just something about him that I, we did not like. And he knows this to this day that like, when we first met him, there was something about him that we could not vibe with. And... We kept going to him because it was Dr. Jack's recommendation, and Dr. Jack was always right. So we went, and over time, he became, like, another family to me. He is – so he became my primary orthopedist, and that's Dr. Gottfried. Um, he was my orthopedist from the time I was probably seven or eight when Dr. Jack had to start going in for his own medical issues until – I mean, really, until I aged out of peds. And even then, I have Dr. Godfrey's cell phone number. If something happens and I fall and I break something, I can text him to this day and ask him to read an x-ray and tell me what I should do. Oh, that's and cool. I did. Six months ago, I wouldn't I break. I fell and I hurt my wrist and my femur. And I texted him and I was like, hi, uh, I definitely need like an x-ray. I know you can't prescribe me an x-ray but i'm gonna go to the er and i'm gonna get an x-ray and then i'm just gonna send you the x-ray and you tell me what to do (laughs) so that's great and i did and i went and the emergency room i'm not gonna name what emergency room it was but they misread my x-ray so i read my x-ray right while i was having it done the x-ray tech turned the thing around and i was like oh okay i see the wrist fracture it's not that bad i'll be fine i probably just need a splint and I said that's the x-ray tech. And then they call me into the room so that they could, like, give me the results of what the radiologist found on the x-ray. And they're like, good news, no fracture. <laughs> I was like, um, I don't know if that's, like, 100% accurate. Like, can you pull up the x-ray so that I can show you what I'm talking about? <laughs> so, so I had to show them the fracture. And now they're telling me that, like, I need this special wrist splint over a fracture that they couldn't find. So I called my doctor on his cell phone. I was like, can you talk to these doctors like, and tell them <laughs> what's going on with me? And he did. And I mean, I could not be more grateful for a human like him. I mean, he has been there through all of it. He knows my body inside and out, very literally. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he was always so firm with us when he had to be. And also very understanding, which I think is what was so important. Because, I mean, the guy is awkward and funny, and I love every bit of him. But, I mean, he loves surgery. He loves operating. (laughs) So, I mean, sometimes he would be like, well, we need surgery. And we'd be like, 
do I though? And I mean, nine times out of 10, the answer was yes, you actually need surgery. <laughs> but I mean, even when we went for other opinions, I, I encountered a doctor during my bone infection that wanted to put me in traction for six months. And to give you an idea of what that looks like, it means that I would take a year off of college when I wanted to be a doctor be in a hospital bed with both of my legs elevated in the air from that bed, hanging from the ceiling for six months. So based on the whole, we shouldn't be in a wheelchair for a very long time thing, you can understand why we thought that that was ridiculous. So when I told him, you know, I'm pre-med, I'm in college, things are hard, but I need to keep going to college. I've always gone to college through breaks and stuff. And his response was, well, that's not really what I'm here to treat. I'm here to fix your leg. And that's not the case. That's not what doctors do. Doctors aren't here to just fix what's wrong. They're here to take into account your lifestyle and your decisions and religious beliefs and everything like that and put it all together and find the best treatment plan and so I've encountered the best of the best and I'm not going to say the worst of the worst but I've encountered some of the doctors that I think I wouldn't want to treat me or to treat other people with my bone disease and I think that unfortunately there are so many people who end up with doctors like them rather than doctors like Dr. Gottfried and Dr. Handelsman and I just want to be able to be Dr. Handelsman and Dr. Gottfried and to be able to outshine those other doctors and hopefully educate as many other doctors as I can on diseases like mine so that more people end up with the quality of care that I got so that more people can end up saying that they were never supposed to walk and now they go to the gym four days a week. I want that to be a thing. I want to be the hero that my doctors are for me because Dr. Godfrey saved my life when I had a bone infection. I mean, was he kind of messy about it? Are a lot of my scars a lot less pretty than they should be because he, like, <laughs> does not pay attention when he's cutting or sewing? Absolutely. Like, he definitely has flaws. A lot of my scars are really ugly. But, I mean, at the end of the day, the man saved my life. So, a hundred times over, really. Because mm-hmm. if I wasn't walking, it would be a very different life. Yeah. Right. yeah. I, I love that you say that. And then I love that you want to be that doctor. But I also love how much of an advocate you are to yourself. And so many people don't realize that they can do that. Like they think that, oh, well, what this doctor says goes, this is what I have to do. And I love that you challenge them, even the person, this doctor that you have such a great relationship with. You're like, actually, you might be wrong. And I, I love that you still do that, even with this like incredible relationship you have. I've never heard of anyone who's been able to just text their doctor. That's I love that. And I love how what you a go getter you are. To do that. That. I oh yeah, I'm jealous. But I, I it that takes a real go getter personality too to feel comfortable and to you know demand that wellness to yourself because you deserve it. And these doctors should provide that to you. And I, I love that you fight for yourself like that. You've always been like that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, he actually, Dr. Godfrey stopped practicing. Um, he's a young guy. He could have practiced for another 40 years, but he stopped practicing so that he could go back to school because he wants to fight for some sort of medical policy or something like that. He wants to be able to take down bad people in medicine. So I love that. I'm like, good for you, but also like, who's going to take care of my legs? <laughs> right. So... Well, did you find that the transitioning from pediatrics to adulthood or even location, because you're not, are you still in New York? Are you still able to see your doctors who you would normally see at home? So I'm in Florida for medical school. Um, So no, I don't, at the beginning when I first moved to Florida and I needed to see an orthopedist, I would literally fly back to New York to see Dr. Gottfried. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I aged out of pediatrics. So Dr. Gottfried was still kind of seeing me because he would still, like I said, look at my x-rays, tell me when I needed a cast and when I didn't. Um, But he 
um, the transition, I guess, out of peds still is very difficult. I still have not found an orthopedist that I would trust with my bones the way I trust trusted Dr. Gottfried and Dr. Handelsman. Um, luckily, I haven't needed a surgery since they were still able to treat me. They were still treating me when I was just about 20, and that was when I had my last surgery. Um, luckily, it's been like five years. I didn't even really think about it. Um, but I haven't needed an orthopedist that desperately to the point where I couldn't just text Dr. Gottfried since then. Um, when that time does come, because it will with my bone disease, um, I will have a really hard time finding another orthopedist because there are references out there, a lot of them for kids with OI, but there are very few adult orthopedists that treat, that specialize in OI. Um, there's a whole OI foundation. They have a website. I called them to ask them if they have a reference in anywhere in Florida, really, for an orthopedist that'll treat adults with OI. Um, they don't have any specialists really on their list for at least nowhere within reasonable distance for me. So that's definitely tough. There are obviously adult orthopedists who are very good, who I can definitely go to regardless of the fact that they're super familiar with OI. I'm sure any orthopedist has had, you know, one patient in their lifetime with OI. Um, I've been very lucky thus far to have them, but the orthopedists that I've seen since them here in Florida have not been, none of them have been someone that I would go back to to do surgery. And being such a rare disease that it is, it's probably not the easiest thing to find other adults in Florida who also have this disease that you could kind of bounce ideas off of them? Do you know anybody else your age there or here? Yeah, so actually when I gave the lecture to my classmates about it, one of them reached out to me and told me that her longtime best friend here at the same school in a different program has OI. She's actually about the same age as me, um, which was crazy. But the differences between our experience with OI is absolutely crazy. Like she, <laughs> and this is like the expressivity thing again. I mean, she is taller, like probably taller than average. I'm four foot eight. I am small. That's a big thing that comes with having OI is you are a small person. So she's super tall. She does have blue sclera. She's fractured between 50 and 60 times as opposed to my 150-ish. Her arms are more affected. My legs are more affected. So that was crazy. Um, and as much as I'd love to be like, hey, what orthopedist do you see? Our needs are so different that it doesn't, it doesn't really overlap very well because in the world of orthopedists, at least, the ones that specialize in leg stuff don't generally do hand stuff. Mm-hmm. The one time I did need a hand surgery, Dr. Gottfried referred me to a friend of his who does hand stuff, has experience with OI. So he did my wrist surgery um, and did a beautiful job, but it, that was the only time I've had surgery by someone that wasn't them. That, that, it's interesting that you say that you know a person with the same exact disease as you has a different experience. I have the same thing with people that I meet that have Crohn's. But do you, how did this affect you mentally growing up and then even just being surrounded by other able-bodied people and in your family too, you being the only person who has this disease, how did that affect you mentally? So I think it was a lot of um, self-isolation despite the, you know, people trying to be inclusive because I'm, you were there through my childhood, you know that people were, did make an effort to be inclusive. Um, it was it always felt more, people felt the need to include me so that I didn't feel excluded, um, which I'm grateful for in the way that, you know, I'm glad that people would rather do that than just ignore the whole thing and pretend that I don't exist because I have a, 
a bone disease. Mm -hmm. um, but I still think that there's a lot of the education piece that needs to go on because like, I'm obviously very supportive of my brother and my sister. They're both able-bodied, um, no bone disease. They played sports growing up. Um, my parents did everything that they could to kind of balance it so that, you know, they had sports that they were interested in. My mom enrolled me in piano class. Given I do not have a musical bone in my body, <laughs> so none of the instruments that they enrolled me in worked out, none of them. I'm very bad at every kind of instrument I've ever touched in my life. So, but they put in a valiant effort to try to find me things that I could do from a wheelchair post-surgery, from my crutches, things that didn't require lifting or running. Um, we did a lot of baking, a lot of crafting, and those are things that I still love to do. Those are my hobbies. So it was a lot of just trying to find things that I could do instead of focusing on things that I couldn't do. Um, I mean, even now, my siblings were not very good at sports. Like, they tried <laughs> and they loved sports, but they weren't very good at them. So none of those things really stuck. But my family has always just been ridiculously supportive. They've never made me feel excluded or secluded or isolated. And I've never felt like I didn't belong in my family, despite my physical differences. Um, my sister especially, she's my biggest supporter. She is the light of my life and I don't think I could have done any of this without her, to be honest with you. She has been there through everything. Every fracture, every surgery, every hard time that doesn't pertain to my physical health, she's been there. And she has helped me through every single one of those events. And I mean, I have distinct memories of her arm elbow deep down my leg cast to itch my knee for me because my arms didn't fit and her tiny little arms could at the time. And not that I would ever recommend that to anyone because that's disgusting now that I think about it as an adult. But also, who else would ever do something like that for another human being? My sister is just one of those people that I don't think I would have been able to do any of these things without. And I'm really grateful for her. I'm really grateful for my family. My mom is just after everything that she's been through, she's just been the most incredible support system. And I rely on the two of them and the rest of my family just so heavily. And I don't know where I would be without them, really. But, I mean, in terms of peers, it was a lot of, I was very different. So recess in elementary school, I couldn't go outside and run around and play. Um, they found alternatives for me. They found alternatives for me for phys ed and all kinds of things like that and I think that while they were doing the best that they could it's still that does definitely take a toll on a child having being separated like that the entire mm -hmm. time to kind of have it exposed to them that yes you are different and your life is very different and we have to treat you differently because of it. So I couldn't tell you a better solution today. I don't know what a better solution would have been for me for phys ed and for recess and all of those things. But I do think that it, regardless, it was going to affect me and any other kid in my position. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I had, I had friends that obviously accepted me in, with open arms and everything like that, but it was definitely like distinct memories of kindergarten, um, our first, probably our first week of kindergarten is probably my earliest memory. And the teachers decided that to keep me safest, one, I had an aide with me throughout all of elementary school. Um, she was always at my side, making sure I didn't fall, making sure no one bumped into me, things like that. Um, but the first thing they kind of did was walk me around in my little walker, because that's what I had as a kindergartner, a tiny grandma walker. Um, yeah, it, I mean, looking back on it, I'm sure like as an adult, I would find that really cute and it would probably make normal adults cry, but like, yeah, that's definitely not cute. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not cute when you're a kindergartner. Um, so I'm in a tiny grandma walker and they walked me around to each of the kindergarten classrooms and basically said, hi, this is Priscilla. She's different. You can't bump into her. Aww. It was like 
like a one person show and tell and like I was the show and tell so I don't think that that was the best thing for them to do because that was probably not a good way to handle disability um kind of showing me to all the kids and being like she's different don't touch her I don't think that that was probably the best move that they could have made Mm -hmm. did they know any better back then no and I can kind of excuse them for that but I think that now that's probably something we should avoid doing with people with disabilities. Yeah, I think they, it's very, and I, I see this, like we, when you were talking about recess, like a lot of times the accommodation that somebody gets for their disability does exclude them from everything. And then something that may be different would be like, okay, so for recess, you can't, maybe you can't go on the playground, but you could probably do indoor recess where there's puzzles and games and such but allow other students to come with you and they could also have the option. Do they want to go outside or do they want to go here so that it's not putting the spotlight on you. Like this person is different. She has to be here. It's like you could join her here. She just happens to be here and not there. Right. So I think the, the exclusion just mentally, that's a lot on a little kid, but I, I've been, that's why I'm going to school. I'm, I'm pursuing my master's in disability studies not only for advocacy, but inclusion for people so that their accommodation isn't excluding them from the situation. It should all be everybody together still right. in a way that they can experience it in a safe way. I don't know what the answer is yet. That's why I'm going to school. But hopefully we can get there and that people could try and understand. I think it's probably better now just in terms of being in the age of information. Like people – like I – we didn't have social media in elementary school, so we wouldn't really be exposed to diseases or disabilities beyond what we know. So I think I wonder I wonder how that is different for people growing up with that, like seeing like a TikTok of, you know, somebody in a wheelchair. If they don't go to school, with somebody in a wheelchair, how do they interpret that information? You know, right, right. I think that's awesome. I love that you're pursuing a degree in that because I think that not enough people think about it mm-hmm. and I think if you weren't exposed to it like you said when you were younger you don't think about it I'd like to think that my close each of my closest friends growing up has a different view of disability than other people that maybe saw me from a distance or people that didn't know anyone with a very visible disability like that I'd like to think that the people that were my best friends in the first and second grade now as adults can see someone in a wheelchair on the street and not think anything of it whereas someone else might stop and stare or try to be over helpful or make all kinds of I don't know weird accommodations just as a stranger mm-hmm. so yeah did you ever receive because I see this a lot in the disability community especially with people in wheelchairs do you ever receive receive unsolicited help, like somebody just going, oh, she's in a wheelchair, she must need help for me pushing her? So that didn't happen because, so when I turned 17 and I started to walk, my disability really became this cyclic, invisible, visible disability. Um, mm-hmm. When I was walking fine, when I learned to walk and I learned to walk well, um, it kind of became a, she probably has a limp but I don't think she has a disability like no one looking at me would assume that I had a disability just watching me walk down the street or watching me walk to class when I was diagnosed with a bone infection I was in a wheelchair long term for the first time in my life Um, I was not used to being in a wheelchair and I was on a college campus so I was at a college away from my family in Pennsylvania and now I was trying to go about college life from a wheelchair and that was now it's I'm new to college I'm new to being in a wheelchair this college campus is they try so hard to be accessible but they are totally inconveniently accessible which is everywhere it Mm -hmm. accessibility is everywhere it's inconvenient everywhere but there were a few times that I found myself in a wheelchair doing what I thought was just fine and out of nowhere it would get a lot easier to push and I'm like what's going on and there's someone pushing me up a ramp I'm like okay like (laughs) I I think that you think that you're doing something really nice and like 
my arms are probably grateful for the like less effort that I have to do, but also like I definitely did not need help. Like, was there something that's, that's the problem because now my thought process is, was I doing something that made it look like I needed help? Mm-hmm. Because I definitely did not need help. And that, I think that adds to the insecure piece of it is, did I do something to, what did I do to make you believe that I needed this help from you? Mm -hmm. And that's hard. I'd have a lot of people that I didn't know. Cause I mean, it was a very friendly campus. The students were very friendly and that's just the way it was there. And that's obviously a really, really good thing, but it's also tough when, you know, you're in the wheelchair, you know, I finally learned how to open doors and push myself through them at the same time when there was no uh, handicap door that opens for you. So I had finally gotten really, really good at it because I had one, I'm not going to call it a good leg because both of my legs are bad legs, but I had (laughs) one leg that was less bad that I could use to kind of hold the door while I pushed through and a whole system. Um, but still there, a lot of times someone would just like book it to come grab a door for me. Like they would see me from across like a long quad and book it to come grab the door. And I'm like, you know, it definitely made my life easier, but did I need your help? No. And while I want to be appreciative so badly, it's also a matter of, you know, just ask me if I need help. Yeah. Consent is important for you know, people think that it's just it, it because they're not touching you that it they don't need to ask your permission, but that's still your space and that's still your body and your work to do this. And they still need to ask you if that's okay. And he's simple, like, no, I got it. Or maybe you do need the help. And like some people will go back and forth of like, you shouldn't have to ask for help, but also you're very independent. And that's something that you probably really value about yourself. So for somebody to assume that you're not, I could like, I can a hundred percent see that frustration. Right. And it was actually really ironic for me because when I did finally kind of embrace my disability after the wheelchair, after the bone infection was kind of under control, that was the first time in my life that I really started to embrace my disability. Um, I, joined some advocacy groups, I joined a group at school, and now I had friends who were wheelchair bound, and I had friends who were in automatic chairs, and I found myself in a position where I was like, you know, my friend looks like they might need help with that door, and I would have to stop myself and say, you were just in a wheelchair, you didn't need help with the door, you were only only in a wheelchair for six months, your friend's been in a wheelchair their entire life, I'm pretty sure they can handle it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you would think that coming from a position where I was there for six months, eight months, that I would know better. And even then, I still had to stop myself because it really, it is an instinct to want to help. And I got in the habit of, you know, letting my friends know, my friends who I knew didn't need my help, I got in the habit of letting them know, like, hey, you know if you ever do need my help, like, you can ask me, right? Because I'm going to stop asking you if you need help because I know I'm annoying because I would ask. I would ask more often than I definitely needed to because I preferred when people asked me. And I was just asking them all the time, like, hey, do you need a hand with that? And I knew, I stopped myself and said, hey, you're being annoying. If someone did this to you, you would hate it. Mm -hmm. So I got in the habit of instead just telling them, you know, if you ever need help with something you just, you don't even have to ask me. Make this weird hand signal so that no one doesn't look to anyone else like you need help if that's the way you want to do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to ask you if you need help because I know that you're more than capable of doing all this stuff on your own. If you find yourself in a weird position and you need assistance, you let me know and I'm right here and I am more than willing to help you because for probably the first time in my life, I'm able to help someone else with something. And they did when they needed my help. And I think that that is the way we should all be looking at this because I wish that that's the way that other people did it with me. Um, 
And I think that that became a lot better. And I think it made our friendships a lot stronger that I wasn't constantly like, oh, do you need help with that? Mm-hmm. Do you need me to grab this? Because I wasn't just doing it for them. But even that constant, you know, it boils down to, I think you are not capable of doing this on your own. Yeah. It's, it, it, it comes down to a, a lot of, and I see there's such a difference in the invisible illness community and being able to see it. So there's a lot of stuff that you say that I, of course, never had to experience. Um, and I learned a lot about this um, in this documentary on Netflix called Crip Camp. Um, uh, it's Judy Human. She has, uh, she's a civil rights and um, disability rights activist, and she helped enact the Americans with Disabilities Act, but she's wheelchair bound. Um, but she, going back to what you were saying about accessibility being annoying and inconvenient, she talks about before the city was accessible that she'd have to like go three blocks just to find a ramp so that she could get to her own house. Do you, are you finding that places, is that what you meant by the accommodation isn't that accessible still or that it's annoying? Yeah, so the my favorite example is there was a, a building on campus when I was an undergrad, when I was in a wheelchair, and you don't think about it when you're not in a wheelchair. You don't think about curbs and ramps and stuff like that. So there was one building that's my, it's a perfect example of inconveniently accessible because it was in the shape of a U with four floors. The only handicap accessible entrance to the building was on one side of the U. So if you look at the the letter U, like the only handicap accessible entrance would be at the top of the left upward thing of the U. And the only elevator to get to any other floor was on the other side of the U. So if you had to go to the fourth floor, you could not just go into the building, up the elevator, and up to the fourth floor. You had to go in one side, go all the way around the U, go up in the elevator, and then go all the way back around the other side of the U just to get to your classroom. If you had to get from one classroom on the second floor to a classroom on the third floor, same thing. You can't just go up the staircase that's right next to the door that you would be at your next classroom in 20 seconds. You have to go around the entire building to the other side of the U, go upstairs, go back around the other side of the U, and come around. And that's how you get to your classroom. That was very literally directly above you. And it's things like that that it's like, Do I want them to have to put another elevator in that building? No. But maybe if the elevator was, like, in the middle, like, maybe make it at the bottom of the U. Like, Mm -hmm. and the building's so old that I know that they didn't build it with anyone with a handicap in mind because they didn't think that anyone with a disability was going to end up going to college back in the day. But that's, that's my perfect example of inconveniently accessible. And that's why it's so important to hire people with disabilities so not only that when the building is being made that it's of course to code but that it makes sense so tell us about (laughs) disability advocacy week so as a medical student i started doing a bit of research into the way that we as medical students learn about disability and accessibility and treating people with disabilities how many doctors with dis- like, are, there are with disabilities. So the results were not good. Um, when I was a medical assistant before medical school, I saw a lot of patients in the pediatrics office that I was working in come in with disabilities. And even the doctors often had no idea what to do. Like if a person in an automated chair came in, they wouldn't take their weight just because they didn't really know how. And I was like, okay, but like, what if he lost like 15 pounds in the last week? Like, I think that's important. So things like that just kind of baffled me. And I was like, well, medical schools are definitely better now. Like when we get there, like, I will definitely be learning about how to weigh people in an automated chair. And no, all of our clinical experiences are with, you know, our patients who are actors and they are making up a whole set of symptoms and stuff so that we could learn how to interact with a patient in a professional, caring, compassionate way. And 
we don't have any exposure to disability until we get to clinical rounds. And that's if anyone with a disability comes in or if we're in a hospital that generally serves people with disabilities. People with disabilities know which hospitals they should and shouldn't go to based on accessibility and experience and things like that. And a lot of us don't get that exposure. So when I started talking about disability, I noticed a lot of people would get uncomfortable or they just didn't know what to say or what to do. And that's okay. I'm not saying that everyone needs to be totally okay with me talking about how I broke my rib last week. Like, that's going to be really weird for a lot of people. And that's okay. But you need to be able to know what to do when your patient comes in and they say that they have X, Y, and Z symptoms. They're in a wheelchair. And you automatically rule out chlamydia because you think that that person's not sexually active because they're in a wheelchair. That's a problem. So I've put together a week of events at my medical school, which, you know, since we're at Zoom University now, um, all had to go online. But we're basically going to start with a panel of adults with disabilities like yourself who are successful with businesses and the whole nine. Um, we have a doctor with a, with a disability. We have a student with a disability. We have a slew of people that are going to come in and kind of talk about their experience, answer student questions, things like that, just to kind of put the exposure out there. We have a behavioral therapist coming in to discuss working with people with behavioral type disabilities. So things like autism, where drastic changes can be difficult, giving injections can be difficult. Um, just learning how to provide a very calm environment, a way to really communicate with those patients more effectively, ways to communicate with their parents more effectively, just situations like that. Because even when I was in primary care as a medical assistant, we had a an adult patient with Down syndrome, and I was the only one in the office that could give her an injection. She would not calm down for anyone else because I was the only one who knew how to speak to her in a way that made her comfortable enough that she wanted to let me give her an injection. And we shouldn't have to gather six people in a room to hold down an adult to give them an injection when you can just talk to them in a way that makes them feel good so that you can just do it with one person. We don't need to use force like that. So that's where the behavioral therapist is coming in. Um, we're going to have a disabled veteran come in because I think that that's something that a lot of us overlook. Um, we have a speaker, we have Eric Legrand is going to speak with us over Zoom. Um, if you don't know his story, I highly suggest you look it up. He's incredible. Um, he was the football player at Rutgers who was paralyzed on the field. Um, he's now a disability advocate and he published a book and set up a charity and he is just incredible. He's going to come speak with us and we were going to do a disability simulation type of day where everyone's, you know, we get a bunch of wheelchairs, we show people what it's like without instilling some sort of pity, sympathy type of thing. We wanted the theme to be, you know, look at how these people have adapted to life and look at what their life is like. And before you go to ask them if they need help, maybe look at things that they've gotten really, really good at. So I, I, that was going to be our week. Um, this simulation, we obviously had to switch to something that we could do online. So it's going to be more of an open discussion about accessibility and how that's changed with COVID. And we have a bingo game set up to kind of give an icebreaker and introduction into accessibility and the different forms of accessibility and things like that. So that's what we're going to be doing on Zoom in lieu of the simulation. But ideally, this will carry on next year and they will be able to do some type of simulation. So overall, I'm hoping that it kind of achieves those goals of, you know, be comfortable talking with someone about their disability, be an advocate for your disabled patients, 
and look at physicians with disabilities as someone who had to overcome one extra step to become a doctor, but they have just as much every right to be there and they're just as capable as all the other doctors. Mm -hmm. I think if not more capable, because you just offer an extra perspective that able-bodied people just as much as they'd like to understand, they'll never understand the way that you do, especially in just that experience. And I, I, but I love what you're doing with the advocacy week. I think exposure is so important. And I think knowing you just from middle school and high school, learning how you were advocating for yourself and just seeing how people reacted to you talking about your disability, that really helps me when I was figuring out what was wrong with me. And I guess we could tell people who are listening how we actually know each other. If you haven't figured it out by now, we went to middle school and high school together. But in eighth grade, we spent a lot of time together. And I remember coming to your house and like seeing you had that tiny little elevator um, from your garage to, I think it went to your room. And I just didn't know that was possible for somebody. I'm like, wow, this makes your life so much easier. Why isn't this available everywhere? Right. And like, I don't, I don't remember if they had a, I'm assuming they had an elevator in the middle school, but I remember the one elevator they had in high school, like you'd probably, it was probably the same thing you were talking about in um, college where you'd have to take that elevator and then go all the way to the other side of the school to get to your course. Right. But so I just want to thank you for always being so open because when I was figuring out what was wrong with me and it was around that time is when my symptoms started, I remember you like everyone was very nice when I was coming out of the hospital everyone wished me well but talking to you was so much different than talking to everyone else because you've been in the hospital so many times and you've been on pain medication and you were the first person I ever related to about managing pain and I remember us both bonding over not liking codeine because it made us constipated and just knowing another 13, 14 year old who was prescribed the same thing as me, that was in a weird way very comforting for me. I'm like, oh, she gets it. Even though we were so different and we had, I didn't even know what was wrong with me or if I even had anything wrong with me at the time. But you being so open to talking about it and you probably didn't even realize it at that point that you were helping me so much. But I, I think about you all the time and how much I owe you to how open I am about talking about diarrhea with people. Because <laughs> I, I think you're, what you were saying about being comfortable talking about disabilities and especially these invisible ones and just being like, no, this is actually happening to me. Believe me, is so important. And I just hope that the people who are listening to this, because this is episode five and I've probably said this a hundred times by now, I hope that they get that by now, that it's okay to talk about yourself and to ask for help and to advocate for yourself and it's a part of you and there's no reason to be ashamed of it right i i it means so much to me to hear you say that because i would have never known that me just being able to talk to you about that kind of stuff had any kind of impact on you whatsoever i it never would have occurred to me that me being in the seventh grade talking about constipation with someone was going to make them more comfortable with themselves because that's something that I'm so dedicated to now, but it's not something that I was ever, that was ever even on my radar before. Um, And so for you to say that I've been doing that for you for this long is, it means so much to me because that's, that's what I'm all about right now. And for me to be able to say that I was a part of your positive experience with your disability is just something that I can be really, really proud of because I, I love that. I love that you've become more comfortable with it. And I love that you're happy to talk about other people with it and talk about it with other people. (laughs) And it's, I don't know. That's just, that's very moving for me. So thank you. I, and thank you. And I'm, I love that you're doing this with med students because that is the future doctors. Right. And that is so heartwarming. And I look forward to the future of our doctors. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And it's, I, I don't know, even as you say these things, it's like, 
there are things that I never gave a second thought to because it was just me talking about another aspect of my life. And as you say it, like I can remember all of the all of the chats that we had and that's pretty amazing for me. So I'm glad that you're excited to be a part of a part of this because I'm excited to be a part of this. And I'm so happy to be here. I mean, I think that this is an incredible thing that you guys are doing. I mean, I think we're kind of on the same mission of, you know, it's okay to talk about it. Like we're, if we're okay with talking about it, you guys can talk about it. We can all talk about it. This has been really great. Anything um, specifically that we got to get to? No, I think this was a really informative and enlightening podcast i'm so happy you were our first guest and i'm so happy you reached out to me because i'm trying not to solicit people (laughs) so i'm so happy that you messaged me because you were on my list of people that i really wanted to have on this show and then so thank you for being so open thank you for coming on you definitely helped me navigate through my disability and i know that you're going to help other people who are listening as well and all the med students and every other wonderful thing you're doing in your life i'm just happy to know you i'm proud of you and just general good things you do as a human being outside of being you know yeah you're amazing thank you guys i'm so happy to be here i'm and you know you can feel free to solicit me for my disability for whatever you need (laughs) Um, all right yeah i mean i'm obviously pretty open about it especially now so if i could help you when i didn't like my disability i think i could be of use to you for pretty much whatever you need me for now (laughs) so i mean i think that's going to make you an amazing doctor so i'm so happy you're on that path (laughs) thank you i really i really appreciate that and i appreciate you guys having me on here again you guys are doing something really incredible here and i really appreciate it and you know thank you guys for the sick invite (laughs) there it is she said it (laughs) said it (laughs) 